Welcome to Further Reading, Craft, Creativity, and the Writing Life, a podcast from the University of King's College MFA program. I'm your host, Jillian Turnbull. On today's show, we talk to Eternity Martis. Eternity is a Toronto-based instructor in journalism whose work has been featured in Vice, Chatelaine, Maclean's, Complex, Refinery29, and The Walrus. She holds a bachelor's from the University of Western Ontario and a master's of journalism from Ryerson University, where she now teaches the first ever course on reporting on race called Black Communities in the Media, a course that came about as a response to a Ryerson student petition earlier this year. At its core, Eternity's writing challenges us to dismantle our preconceptions and stereotypes, especially around young Black womanhood. She has written about feminism, racism, sexual assault, domestic violence, and reproductive rights, earning many accolades, including a Canadian Online Publishing Award for her work. Her new book, They Said This Would Be Fun, Race, Campus Life, and Growing Up, is a searing examination of racism and misogyny on Canadian university campuses, and is already destined to be a central part of the growing canon of 21st century literature on anti-Black racism. Today, Eternity joins us on further reading to talk about writing craft, memoir, and the hard work of getting your first book into the world. Welcome, Eternity. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Jillian. It's great to have you here. I just read your book about a month ago, and as a university instructor who's teaching many young women right now, I'm really excited to have this. Uh, it's just, it's done so much to help me understand what your worlds are like right now. And I've done my best to try to understand it in all of my teaching, but I, I just felt like this shone a really necessary light onto the modern life of students, especially on Canadian campuses, which we don't hear much about. So I really, really enjoyed it and appreciate your work. And I'm very excited to talk to you. Thank you. So I thought maybe we could get started. I know you're on this kind of endless publicity tour with the book. And so I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about what that experience is like of just having to to kind of constantly be on and ready to go and be talking about all the material in your book and just what that experience has been like for you. It's been it's been beyond my wildest dreams and for many reasons one being that I spent 10 years working on this book and I got my agent and my book deal in 2018. So from 2018 until um, about a year and a half of 2019, I had been writing full-time with a full-time job, but um, my book came out in the middle of a pandemic. And so all these kind of things that you hope for, they kind of just dissipate. My book literally, I think the day that everything shut down, my book had been in the bookstores and was just locked in there. And so the most disappointing experience I've ever had, just thinking I poured my heart and soul into this project for, you know, it's my baby in a way for a decade. And now it's nothing. And then what's been happening in the world and over the summer with George Floyd and um, Black Lives Matter protests, my book kind of just came back. It kind of got this second wind, which was um, really amazing to see. And since about May, June, I have been on an endless, like you said, an endless publicity tour of talking about the book. I've been uh, giving keynotes at various universities and colleges across Canada. 
I've been talking to students across Canada. I've been doing um, some media, like TV shows. I've done the social city line. It's been really amazing to to be in this position where I get to talk about not only the book that I wrote, but about how it applies to the environment that we're in and the political climate that we're in. And when I was writing the book, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if this was a book that was going to be relevant and timely by the time it came out. And I think it's um, it's been more relevant than I could have even hoped it would be. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really great just in that you were so often told you can't write a memoir until you've lived for a very long time. And, And there's so many young women challenging that notion right now. But I think especially a memoir about university, a lot of people say, well, it's just, you know, the the kind of common coming of age experience. But you're showing us that that experience is not universal in any sense. So I think it's really kind of uh, struck a chord with a lot of readers. Yeah. And I think for me, even when I was writing this, I was I had graduated from Western, was doing my journal, my master's in journalism at Ryerson. And even at the time, that was still the thinking, you're not old enough to write a memoir. What have you survived through? What have you been through? What kind of pain have you been through that you're entitled to write a memoir? And on the other hand, writing a memoir about an experience or a point in your life when you're supposed to be having fun, no one thinks that these bad things are happening to you. So every step of the way, it went from writing a book about race, when everyone was like, it's 2010, it's 2013, it's 2015, you know, racism isn't problem to you're so young what have you endured and I think I really internalized that and thought oh you know what the oppression that I felt the suffering that I felt the you know the racism the sexual assault the violence the the endless violence maybe it didn't happen and so when I actually was writing drafts of the book I actually wrote them as a huge like as a comedy like as a humorous book Mm -hmm. and my agent um and my my editor she was like this is really dark and I'm like what are you talking about and I think that really speaks to just how the ways that we kind of dismiss young people especially young people of color and say if you want to talk about your experiences you're entitled you haven't suffered enough yet and I think that a lot of people today are showing that Um, We all suffer in ways, some ways that are more publicized, some that are less visible. Um, But there are so many stories to be shared. And there's you don't have to attain a certain level of pain and suffering and age and gender and status to write a memoir. Yes, that's exactly it. And I think, you know, to um, to deny someone that opportunity or to make it really focused on pain and suffering and the survival of that. I mean, it's it's just playing into this kind of trauma porn moment that we're in that shouldn't be a, a sort of prerequisite for telling your story, which is obviously going to be enormously important to university students and instructors, as it's proven to be so far to hear about your experience. So how about we uh, we kind of go back to that moment when you started writing? and what kind of brought you into the world of writing and and how you've turned that into a career? Well, I've always wanted to write. I think I decided that I was going to be a writer around the age of eight or nine. And a lot of that had to do with with my grandparents. And so I'm from a family that came from Karachi, Pakistan in the 70s. And they came here. My grandfather was very much about being a good person, being a a good citizen, providing for his family and kind of exposing me to what we kind of call middle class values, taking me to the theater, uh, rolling me in gymnastics and all of that stuff. And reading was kind of one of those ways where they wanted to expose me to different ideas. And so my grandmother used to read to me every night. And so I developed a love of books very, very early on in my life. And when she passed away, I actually started writing picture books. It was kind of my way of dealing with grief. At the same time, I was um, an only child. I had really no social skills, a little bit chubby. I used to wear pants with elastic. 
And so <laughs> I would read and reading was a great escape for me when everyone's kind of bullying you, you don't know what to do with yourself. Reading is the perfect escape. And so I continued to write up until my teens. And I won, I think when I was about 15 years old, I won a Toronto Public Library Youth Voices Award for something I had written. And so I thought, you know what, maybe there's something here. And then in my last year of high school, there was a creative writing course and I took it and I was so excited. And on the first day, my teacher said, if you want to be a writer, prepare to be broke your entire life. Like you will never <laughs> be a writer. No one becomes a writer. He was a failed writer. So I, I the whole thing was kind of just coming together. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this is not what I want. But it at the same time, it was always the only thing that I had wanted. So when I went to university, I my first year I took English, I took women's studies, and I took social work thinking, well, if he says that I can't be a writer, then maybe I'll do social work and I'll write in my spare time. And any resource you look, as a lot of us know who want to be authors, we know that when you Google how to write a book, a lot of the information is negative. It basically says you'll never be a writer, you'll never get a book published. And if you do, you'll do it as a side thing. So I had done social work. And by the end of my first year, I had gone through a massive life-changing experience with my first boyfriend, who I talk about in the book. We had a really abusive relationship. And it really changed my perspective on a lot of things. I realized that your life can be taken from you at any moment. And I just thought, you know what, let me just give this a try. That's what I owe myself. Let me give it a try. And uh, I dropped out of social work, continued with English, women's studies, took a certificate in writing. And I just kept writing all through um, my first year, second year, third year, fourth year, till I got to my journalism degree. And I had decided to do journalism because I thought, well, if I can't make money as a writer, journalism also is a really cool path because not only do I get to tell stories, I get to tell stories in a way that are I'm sharing stories, I'm getting to change policies or helping people act. Um, and that's how I kind of fell into it. But then even when I got to journalism, I wasn't the type of journalist that my professors wanted me to be. I wasn't the type of person who wanted to be in front of um, a camera. I didn't want to chase people down with a microphone. I wanted to do more of the literary side of things. And so as I kept writing, I started to kind of network with more lit people in the literary or publishing scene more than journalism. And it became this kind of um, career that I made for myself out of a space where nobody else was really doing it um, and just kind of stuck with it. And then I, I wrote my first book and I really do enjoy kind of straddling the line between being in publishing and being in journalism. That's interesting. So I sort of got hung up on your description of the kind of journalist your professors want you to be because, you know, just personally, I love it when people <laughs> fight against the system imposed on them <laughs> in some way. Yes. <laughs> um, um, so maybe just tell me a little bit more about that. What was the expectation of you? And did you feel like you were fighting or just that you had to kind of carve out your own path aside from what you were being taught? So I, I think I had really great professors, but the professors that I had were, I think, from a, a, a the old school type of journalism. And for me, I was quickly learning based on my experience that I had at Western University, where my entire existence suddenly hinged on me being black and being a black woman. I, I was coming from a different perspective and experience than my peers. There were only two black students in my class. And what I was really interested in was using my experience to tell a larger story. So personal journalism, for example, uh, and writing about race. And it was a really interesting time when I became a journalist because one, personal writing was still not a thing. Like my instructors, some of my instructors would ridicule it and say, if you're personal writing, if you're doing personal journalism, that's trash. That's not journalism. That's indulgent. That's whiny. That's not real. Um, never mind that. 
uh, as a black woman, my and as a woman of color, many, many of the stories we know about our ancestors come from personal writing. Um, so I was dealing with that part of being ashamed of being a personal writer and enjoying writing essays. And then I was also dealing with this weird situation where we were just on the tipping point of making race visible. I had graduated from Western in 2014, two months before Mike Brown was shot and killed. And I became a journalism student after that, after Black Lives Matter had be, kind of come out on this global scene. And the polarization that we saw at that time was so different than now. It was it was this kind of battle between um, Black Lives Matter versus if you're an unruly body, Black body, you deserve to die. And so journalism and racism and talking about race were kind of really still contentious. There were a lot of times early in my career where as a black person, I wasn't even allowed to write about Black Lives Matter. Like at my internships, they would think that I was affiliated with Black Lives Matter because I was black. So it was a very strange time. And um, I just kept writing. It just felt like it was right. Uh, along the way, I had professors, I had um, acquaintances say, you're going to get blacklisted, you're going to get pigeonholed. And I never saw it as pigeonholing. I think for some journalists, they want to cover many, many things. To me, race and gender, they're integral parts of our society. And it's the way that society moves and ebbs and flows. Um, and we learn what we learn history, we learn what's changed and what's stayed the same from analyzing race and gender. And so I kind of stuck with it. And sometimes to the irritation of professors, but I did it anyways, because it felt really important. And it, uh, it paid off, it paid off for me. Clearly. And, and I think that's such an important thing to say, because we're so often beholden to the institutions we study at and feel like if we don't meet their expectations, that somehow we failed. And often that requires ignoring our internal instincts, especially as writers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So then how did you take that uh, orientation around your work and then and spin it into a career? How did you get your freelance career going out of your master's? So I got my career going, I think I'd actually, I'd started my career when I was at Western. Okay. And um, the first piece that I had written was actually, it's now in my book, um, where I talk about bell hooks and the exotification of black women by white men. So I had written a piece after this experience that I had where I was dating a white guy and it turned out that he was kind of just using me to be his first black woman. And um, I was so, I didn't know what to think about it. I was just all up in arms about it. And I read a Bell Hooks piece and I was like, oh, wow, this is really cool. And at the time, like I'm very much about theory and practice, which is a, a feminist principle. But I thought, I wonder if I can write something where I can talk about my experience, but also show that this is not an isolated experience. And so I had written something for a, uh, a friend's blog. And the next morning I woke up and the Huffington Post asked if they could republish it. And it went viral. And they were massive, like massive discussions. It was on all these like these um, these media shows and people were talking about it, what it meant to be a woman of color and be exoticized. And so I got my start at the Huffington Post in that sense. I was writing for free. I was writing about Black Lives Matter, about Black lives in general and Black women. And I just kind of wanted to start writing for other places. And so I started to learn, I learned how to pitch. Um, pitching is not really something that you learn a lot of in journalism school. So I would just kind of look at different publications and see what I liked, if their styles matched mine and start to pitch them ideas. And I got my second, um, the second publication I wrote for was for Vice. 
And once I got in the door advice, it kind of opened up the opportunity for me to keep pitching other people. And um, I use a lot of social media to kind of look around, ask editors out for coffee, ask what they were looking for, pitch them, got my foot in the door in that way. So it was really... um, I'm a, I'm a very introverted person. I don't like to go for coffee and, and mingle. So I would just reach out online and um, and find that once you get your foot in the door somewhere and you have a byline in that way, it's so much easier. And so it just kind of became this game of spending my weekends and time after class kind of scoping out the Canadian media landscape and seeing what kinds of stories I could contribute and reaching out to their editors. Wow. So that's really full-time work, essentially, just constantly keeping your eye on things. Oh, yes. Yes. I used to have a spreadsheet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about that. What did your spreadsheet look like? So on the spreadsheet, so I would have ideas. Um, I used to keep a book of ideas. I I still do this. I keep like a dedicated notebook where I have some ideas in it. And then I choose, say, three to five and develop them. When I develop them, I start to think about, well, where would this land? And so on my spreadsheet, I'd have like, you know, the tone of the of the magazine or the publication, who their editor was, if I could find what the pay was, how how the best way to pitch them. Um, And then what I would do is I would um, do another spreadsheet of all my stories and then keep track of where I pitched those stories. So I had done that for quite probably about for my first year in in J school. But the year actually before that, I had a piece picked up by Roxanne Gay when she had a, um, a series at Salon. And um, she, had a, she used to run a series for women of color. And she picked up a piece of mine about what it means to be uh, like a black biracial woman in a brown family. And I remember my instructor saying to me that the only reason I had got it in was because of, of luck. And I don't believe in luck at all. I believe in coincidence. I believe in hard work. And I just thought, well, there are so many things like to, to even to even know that series are going on or to know that you know submissions are open. You're doing the work, you're looking, you're scoping. And so I had been doing that for a long, long time. Later on in my career, I would set Google alerts on submissions, on the word submissions, and mm. see what would come up. Um, I was spending hours kind of on social media looking for opportunities down the road um, binders. So the binders full of women group had opened up on Facebook. I was in there going around. So you're right. It was a full-time job for me, but this was the only thing I ever really wanted to accomplish was to be a writer. So I was committed to it a hundred percent. And do you find the, the social media part of that is also an idea generator in some ways that you can sort of monitor conversations between people and see sort of what the mood of the day or the week is and develop ideas out of that too, aside from networking? Yeah, I think especially now, um, at the time, maybe not so much, but I think Twitter especially has become this place where um, there's a, there's an exchange of ideas. Sometimes there's a, um, you know, there are battles, but I find a lot, and I used to be an editor, a senior editor at, uh, extra magazine. And so a lot of times, I think a lot of the articles that you see come out of editors scoping social media, seeing what people think and being like, Hey, can you turn that into an 800 word piece? So I think the ideas are there, um, on social media to help you kind of craft your own story or they kind of reaffirm or confirm. And we see a lot of that mostly with places like Refinery29 or even Bustle, 
where um, on social media, there's like reaction pieces, right? You'll see reaction pieces of um, publications pulling tweets. And those are stories now. So I think the generation of ideas on social media has become a, a really good tool for writers, but also a really good tool for editors. And I think you can make a great case as a writer to say, like, here's the reaction. Can I write a reaction piece? Or here's what I, here's what I said on social media. I'd love to write a piece that kind of expands on that. Hmm, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that world, but it's true. You do see that more and more just kind of in the general news. Do you find like um, once you have a relationship with an editor that some of the kind of formalities of pitching can be bypassed, that you can just sort of send them a casual email and say, what do you think of this idea? Have you got that kind of relationship going now? Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm really lucky to be in a place where I don't normally have to pitch. I I rarely pitch anymore. I'm usually assigned things. Or if I do pitch, it's not a formal pitch. Like I'm not writing the like three paragraph or four paragraph pitch anymore at this point in my career. And I think when you get to that point where editors, they assign you things or you can bypass the formal process, I think it's a good sign of your writing too. Um, As an editor, I spent four years as an editor you're really kind of desperate for good writing and you're really desperate more so than good writing. You're looking for people you can trust to tell a story, to tell it well, to fact check themselves, to send in copy that's good. So when you find that, I think that editors are are likely to hold on to it. And having seen the other side of that as an editor, it is kind of funny. There, There aren't a whole lot. You would assume that people who pitch to you are like, you know, they're seasoned writers. It really isn't the case. Usually if you have about 10 writers, maybe two of them are writers you can rely on. So I think when you're able to develop your craft and your skill and become reliable and resourceful to an editor, you can start to bypass that whole formal pitching process. Hmm. You're making this all sound (laughs) very wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) It's not, but it can be. (laughs) I like it. You know, it's nice to inject a bit of optimism into the writing world every once in a while, for sure. So is there anything that presents difficulties for you in the process? Yes, for sure. I I am. I I really do acknowledge that I'm, I'm incredibly lucky to be where I'm at. And I think one of the downsides of that has been that I've dedicated a lot of time time and sacrifice to this industry, especially when I was writing my book, even freelancing for about five, six years, I sacrificed my social life. When people go home and they like, you know, they see their partners or play with their dog or go for a run. I was just working, working, working. And so in this industry, you're working towards something that may not even happen. And so there's a great deal of faith or blind faith in this whole process. It's exhausting. I was really lucky to have the support of my grandfather, the financial support of my grandfather in case I needed to fall back on something. And he supported me for all of my time at Western and my first my my first year or so at Ryerson. So I was incredibly lucky to be able to do this. I know a lot of people who are getting in this industry, they don't have that kind of financial support or family support. So it was really hard. I was able to have that. So it came a little bit easier to me, or at least I was secure in being able to do this because I knew I had something to fall back on. So that can be really tough. And then also the other thing is that, um, if you're not, if you're still at the point in your career, and I get this a lot with with younger students or students who are in in J school right now, they feel like they're never going to get to a place where you can actually write the things that you love, or they're never going to get to a place where their editor 
understands what they're writing. And I see that a lot with, with students of color. And I felt like that too. There was a long point in my career, a long time where I was like, I hate what I'm doing. I don't like news or my editor doesn't understand why I want to tell the story. Like, should I just drop out? And there were many times where I almost dropped out or I quit the program or I considered law, which somehow I thought was better. <laughs> but um yeah, there was a lot of uncertainty and I've never met anyone, especially someone of a person of color in this industry who hasn't thought about quitting at least five times. So it is great and rewarding when you get there, but the sacrifices to get there, sometimes you just don't make it and you just say, you know what, maybe this will be my side hustle or something I do as a hobby, but not as a full-time job. Well, there is something particularly, I guess, soul-destroying and kind of desperate feeling about not just trying to pitch and work as a freelancer, but also trying to collect your pay sometimes just to be following up on your invoices and, and keep track of that side of your work. What's your, what are your thoughts on writing for free earlier in your career? Oh, my, my opinion has changed many, many times. Um, the first thing is that it's really a dehumanizing experience to have to beg for something that's owed to you. And um, a lot of publications, and I think this is even within our industry, people treat writers as just writers. They're just writing something. But writing is a craft, regardless, whether you're writing novels or you're writing a feature or a news article, it's all a craft that's learned. It takes time and hours and labor. And a lot of what I see on, on social media, especially with um, certain companies, people are begging and groveling for their paychecks and they're being met with a lot of hostility or they haven't been paid at all. And so it's a really it's really damaging to kind of your idea of, of you know being a freelancer, first of all. But writing for free, these days, I don't think that people should write for free. I, I started my career writing for free because I didn't know any better. And not only that, I was writing for free, but I was also writing really traumatic things about my life for free. And these days, I don't think that there's any excuse why any publication should be allowing people to write for free. There are lists out there, like who pays writers lists that are really great. Um, there's a lot of accountability and a lot of social media usage among writers when people don't pay their writers well. So it's not something that today I would say to ever settle for. Um, at the minimum, $150. Even today, that's not even a rate that is acceptable, but nothing for free. When I started to write, I was writing for the Huffington Post and they had a blog section where they didn't pay people. And even from then to now, that's changed a lot. I don't think a lot of people would do that. So I would say no, writing for free. If you write for your school newspaper, excellent. If you write for your school magazine, Getting bylines that way is great because that's still leverage. It's still one more byline than having nothing. Um, but you shouldn't set the precedent of writing for free, especially if it's stuff that's really sensitive or taboo or, or traumatic. You shouldn't be writing that stuff for free. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a really good point that, and especially for women who perhaps might be less likely to ask for payment for their work and who also might be writing deeply personal stories that just, you know, we need to re sort of reinforce that uh, for young women starting out in the business that whatever you're writing is is worth the labor that you're putting into creating it, right? And and it's, it's worth being paid for it. Not only that, but I, I would sort of bring up the component of research, which clearly, you know, your pieces in your book have required a ton of research. So it's not just about craft, but it's all of that kind of pre-labor that goes into crafting a piece. 
So maybe would you mind talking about what that process is like for you and and how you think about it as a writer, uh, getting your sources together and things like that? Yeah. Um, well, I made a decision really early in my career that um, when I write about myself or I write about race or gender or gender-based violence, there will be data, which I guess as a journalist I need. But I think when you are a person of color or you're a woman, and especially today when we're talking about the Black Lives Matter or Me Too stories, people don't believe you. They think you're whining if you don't have data and you don't have facts. And the thing that I like about data and facts, although that's what it takes for people to believe you, I think it begins to kind of weave this narrative that this is not an isolated experience. This is something that has been going on. It's going on around you, people you love. It's been going on for decades, centuries. So I've always been really um, mindful of that. And For me, research is kind of the first thing I think of. So if I have an idea um, that's not, say, an essay, for example, but something or it's a reported essay or it's a feature, I'm already thinking of who who can I reach out to? What does that look like? And from there, my who are my experts? Who are my everyday people? Is there diversity in that? Um, I had just done a story for the West End Phoenix on um, the West End area. And I found that really tricky because when you start talking about health and stuff like that, for example, you really need hard research and it needs to be right. So um, I spent a lot of time on Stats Canada. I spent a lot of time reading scholarly work. So I'll use like Google Scholar or if you're part of an, like an education institution, you can use your school library. So I'm reading not just articles. I'm reading re- like reports and uh, reports. I'm reading scholarly pieces. I'm reading everything and um, trying to form an image of how the story can look. And one thing that they teach you in J school is if you ever pitch a story, for example, that involves research, you should know who you're researching or have an idea of it before you pitch it. Because a lot of times that's where stories crumble. When you have to get to the part where you're researching and you don't know who you're going to reach out to, it's not a good look for anyone. So I do spend a lot of time doing this. I keep also like a kind of research document when I work on a story. Normally what I do is I will take all the research I found, put it in a document, and then start thinking about the narrative after that, just so that I know that the research is there. And sometimes what's really cool about research is that it changes your story, or that's where you find the story. So when I did my uh, my thesis, or they call it an MRP in journalism school, I had done my, my MRP on intimate partner violence in the, the millennial group of women. And I didn't know what I was looking for. I was just researching it. And then while I was looking at the data, I realized that young women from 15 to 24 were the most at risk of intimate partner violence in the country. And this whole time, I think a lot of us assume because we use the word domestic violence, we always assume that violence is something that that specifically affects older women or cohabitating women um, or married women. And I was like, oh, this is crazy. And it changed, it kind of changed everything for me, changed the entire story. So research is a big, big part of it. And uh, my friends that kind of make fun of me because I'm always like, where's the research? Where's the data? Where's the nut graph? (laughs) But um, I think it's really important. I think that is how we kind of understand what is going on in the world around us as well. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting because I think the, the sort of default position that writers will take is if you're writing memoir, especially, or some version of, of personal storytelling, that research isn't necessary, that like, how Mm -hmm. can one conduct research on oneself? Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I actually, the research element of my memoir was something that came, I think, after, while I had been at Ryerson, when I was writing it, I had initially planned for it to be all, like, all personal. And um, 
as I was kind of the years went on, we had some really kind of groundbreaking shifts in our culture in 2012, 13, 14, and 15. And so as I was writing the book, I was traveling. And when I would travel, I would meet people no matter where I was in the world, other people of color, young people, people who were in the 60s, 70s, 80s, who had very, very similar experiences to what I had at Western. And that was about alienation, being black on campus, exotification, all of these experiences that made me kind of think like, huh, this is really a thing. If this is happening, people tell me I'm exaggerating. I'm clearly not exaggerating. But where, like, where's the work on this? Where are the Canadian books on this? But as I was writing the book, we started to have these discussions about, you know, Canadian values. And then the alt-right emerged in 2016. And there were all these kinds of um, these things out in the world that kind of really changed from when I had come into kind of the world as an adult. And so it felt really fitting at the time to show that, like to show the research part of that, to say, this is my story, but this story is not isolated by any means. And this is what's happening in the world. And so I spent a lot of time doing research for the book and it does get called a memoir. I think it's fair to call it a memoir, but I think there's also a lot of reporting. Like I spoke to people for this book. I spoke to city councillors in London. I spoke to many, many people and you may not see them necessarily cited there, but it's in there. Um, I spoke to hate crime experts. Um, I learned a lot about the world that we live in and about white supremacy in Canada. And it's not necessarily kind of cited because it's not that kind of book, but it was important for me to bring attention to what's happening in the world. And the response to the book of people saying, I didn't know this was happening kind of shows that like, yeah, this is not being spoken about. Mm-hmm. So with with such um, kind of fraught subject matter, how do you get your sources to trust you and and open up and and give you the information you're looking for? Yeah, this is a, it's something that I'm teaching my class about right now. And it's something that I don't take lightly. I think when I started out in journalism, I had assumed that, well, because I'm writing about black issues and I'm black, that people will trust me. And I was so far, I was missed, I was gravely mistaken. And I think that as a journalist, people saw me, especially in my community, people saw me as a journalist first and then as a black person. And journalists had caused a lot of mistrust and harm and betrayal to, uh, to black communities and a lot of communities. Mm. So what I tell my students is that you can be a journalist, you can belong to a community, but you're not entitled to anyone's story. And no one needs to give it to you. To give someone your story, to relive something, to go through the emotional labor or the trauma. And when reliving this stuff, it can be really traumatic for people. People do that, right? They're not getting paid for it. They're not getting a gift certificate. They're doing this and with with knowing that their story will not only be out there, but that could also cost them opportunities, cost them a loss of life or harassment. So what I've always done is I've always tried to make connections first. So before I even go into a story, I might say, for example, there's an organization I want to get in touch with. I might reach out to them and say, hey, I'm a journalist. I'm interested in covering a story on you guys in the future. I just want to let you know or ask them out for a coffee. These days, virtual coffee. So I might kind of build um, kind of poke around in that way first. Uh, I might ask friends to put in a good word. So if I know somebody, I might say, hey, can you ask this person and have them vouch for me? Sometimes I use my, my own work. So I think I've built up at this point a portfolio where it shows that I write about Black issues. I put that at the bottom. So in an email, I might say like, you know, here's some, here's some of my work if you're interested. 
And I always identify myself and the story and then I'm interviewing somebody. So I never say, like, I'll say, I'm eternity. I am this. I'm working on this story for this place. And I'd like to have, a, I'd like to schedule an interview with you. I don't say chat because I think people think a chat is literally a chat, not an interview. Mm. And that causes confusion. So I like to be up front. And the last thing that I do is I always stay in touch, especially if it was a really hard story to do. I've interviewed a lot of people. I've interviewed mothers who've lost their sons to gun violence, for example. And what I normally do is I just check in. So after an interview, I'll thank them. I'll offer to send them a copy or send a link to the story around the holidays. I'll send a message, um, say happy holidays and just keep in touch that way. And then if it's somebody who really is not familiar with the media, what I like to do is I, I kind of apply the concept of informed consent to reporting and to gathering sources. So I will make sure every step of the way they know they're talking to me, even if I lose them. And so I'll say, are you sure this might be published somewhere else? Are you okay with that? I can't give you the story, but I can go over like the quotes in the story to make sure you're okay with this and read it to them that way so that they feel secure and safe and trust me as um, somebody who's using their story. Hmm. And have you ever had anyone retract what they had offered you in the first place and say, I don't, I don't want to be quoted anymore. I want to be, I don't want to be part of the story. No, I haven't had that happen, but I did have, when I wrote a piece for Vice, that's my book is based on in 2015. It was about London and racism. I had really, really strongly applied the whole informed consent conversation to my subjects. And I said, like, this could go bad. This could go south. You could get harassed. Like, are you sure you want to do this? And I was very clear every step of the way. I was clear about names and everyone agreed. I think I actually even had them sign something. And then when the piece came out, they all mm -hmm. wanted they wanted us to take the piece down and take their names out because they were being harassed. Like students wow. they went to elementary school with were harassing them and doxing them. Oh, my God. It was really bad, but I couldn't do anything because it's it's hard to be a human and be a journalist and you want to be as compassionate as you can be but you also need to put your foot down and if you've done everything you can do when a piece is finally out and you've gone through it so many times it's scary right to, to tell that story but I couldn't do anything at that point and so I I've never had anyone retract like before it's been published but that one time was really hard for everybody involved yeah yeah wow can I ask you one more question about research? Uh, I'm, I'm curious about the issue of the absence of race-based data in Canada, especially in the kinds of reporting that you're doing. Has this presented a problem for you? And is it something that you foresee changing in the future? Yeah, it has presented, um, it's presented a problem that somehow I've skirted. And I think that's because at least the U.S. is there and as I think a lot of editors are aware that we just can't, you know, they want it to be a Canadian story, but it can't be a full Canadian story because we don't have that data. So in that sense, I've been using the U.S., but I think in using the U.S. and the U.K. and Australia's data and saying that you're using that data, I think the more pressure journalists kind of put on the government to collect it in those ways, saying like, here's this data, where's ours? I think hopefully that changes things down the road. And um there are different people kind of doing this work, do, working really hard to, to, to advocate for race-based data, or they're just doing it themselves. And so finding those sources who are doing this work and interviewing them to get their voice in there is important as well. So it has, it has been challenging. Um, there are people doing it. It's just not happening fast enough. I don't know if it will, but I thought what was extraordinary was the push for race-based data around COVID 
They didn't want to release it. Quebec backtracked, and then Toronto released it and found that um, black people, like black neighborhoods in Toronto, were the most at risk of um, or, or or had COVID. They they were more likely to have COVID in those areas. They were more they were poorer areas, lower income areas, and that research correlated with Montreal and the U.S. So I think when we release data, we get to st- we start to understand these ne- the needs of our community. We can't say we're multicultural or a multicultural society, then ignore the needs of the community because we refuse to collect the data. So I think the pressure's on, and I hope that it starts to come in really soon. But even from there, the collection of that data and the ethics behind it are going to be another issue, to, like another barrier to have to go through. Yeah, and then of course releasing it presents a whole other set of problems on top of the collecting. Yeah. So I I think I'd like to talk about the book now in more detail because all of this work around your research, I feel like was integrated really seamlessly into the book alongside your personal story. It doesn't feel like, you know, you tell this little anecdote and then you leap over into a pile of statistics. Like it's, it's all very smooth transitions and, and this very sort of inviting voice that you present some pretty serious data within. And then you have these amazing, you know, hilarious sections, <laughs> but also sort of dark sections on just being a student of color in the Canadian university context. I especially liked your little add-ons to the end of each chapter called the Necessary Survival Guide for Token Students. Yes. But even like these little things like the Greek chorus that presents itself in one of your chapters. I'm just curious how you like how hard was that to structure and how did you manage to pull all of that together and come up with a, a very innovative structure for the book? Yeah, that was kind of the one of the, the more fun parts of, of putting together the book and not having to do memory work there. I think um, I've always wanted to play with genre and format and one thing I had done, I, I learned this term from somebody and uh, apparently it's a TED talk term, but it's like, it's called productive procrastination. <laughs> and um, <laughs> that's what I do when I, I get into something, I submerse myself. So I was researching, I was reading all the competition books, anything that resembled my book. And what I learned from that, I learned how to play with structure um, there's one thing in the book that I tried to do where I tell, say, two different stories. And you might say, like, huh, how does that make sense? And by the end of it, you they kind of tie together. And in particular, it was Sachi's book, Sachi Cool's book, mm. One Day We'll All Be Dead and None of This Will Matter. And she has the interstitials where it's her her dad who's, like, infamous on the internet. But, like, the emails <laughs> from her dad. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I didn't know that we could even play with something like that. So the the, the chapter, like, the, the Necessary Survival Guide for Token Students was actually the one of the original chapters from the book that my editor was like, this doesn't fit into the book. The book's kind of dark now, but um, <laughs> this is not fitting. And I'm like, I'm not kill- I'm not killing this darling. Like this darling has to stay. <laughs> and she recommended doing the interstitials that way and said it would be a nice, like kind of breaking up of the darkness to have these as interstitials. And it, and it worked. It was so cool to be able to do that. And um, just playing with like, you know, Greek, a lot of, um, a lot of memoirs, actually, they have like bullet points or point form notes and stuff. And I like that. I think it breaks up the text in a fun way. And so with the Greek tragedy, um, I can't even remember how that happened. But my editor was like, wait, you liked Greek tragedy. Were you reading Greek, tra- Greek tragedy when you were seeing this guy? And I was like, you know what? Yes. <laughs> and so I just thought, wouldn't it be so funny? Because in my mind, the way that I thought of the, the whole relationship was kind of in these different parts, right? It was so tragic. And then it was, you know, <laughs> there was hubris and there were all these things. And so I thought, what if I kind of 
formatted it in that way, wouldn't that be something? So um, it just kind of took a leap and thought, like, I don't see this a lot. But as a reader, I would love to kind of get into a book and it'd be fun in this type of way. And so that was kind of some of the reasons I thought I said, well, you know, let's try something fun. Let's make this a book that you want to read, but also that's interactive. Yes, that's exactly it. Like when I was finished reading it, I felt like, I mean, aside from learning so much and and learning some really necessary things uh, about teaching and engaging with younger women, I just felt like I'd been on this almost sort of fun road trip with you or something. I thought like, (laughs) is this the right reaction to have? I don't know. (laughs) But it was... I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, it was such a breath of fresh air, like just that sort of willingness to experiment. We just see it so rarely. Even the memoir, if if we're talking strictly in those terms, it's become very codified in lots of ways. So yeah, I just I just loved that that very free approach to experimentation. Thank you. Yeah, it was um, even chronological order was a bit of an issue for me. Mm-hmm. I I think I think chronologically like everything in a box. And my editor Haley Cullingham was like, it doesn't have to be chronological. And it was like she might as well have like. I don't know, like turned into a giant like school bus. I was like, what do you mean? It can't, it's not chronological. What do you mean? It will ruin the whole thing. And um, she's like, no, just try it. And even that, and to be able to kind of take the pressure off of yourself to say, I trust my audience to be able to decipher this. And does the, does the chronological order matter anyways? And so playing with that as well was like a big learning experience mm, for me. Interesting. Yeah, so you kind of end up with these, I guess, thematic chapters, even though a lot of them sit on particular relationships, your friendships, your your romances, your mother, your father. I guess I'm, I'm sort of curious, especially around writing very personal details about those relationships. How did you go into that writing and take them into consideration, but also you know, be dedicated to telling your truth? What's some of the negotiating you did around that? And how'd you come up with your, with your approach? Oh, that was, uh, that kept me up at night. I was really Mm. worried. Um, I think when I started reading memoirs, I was, I was probably um, in my early teens and a lot of those like Sloan Crosley type of memoirs, they were messy and it was like, I'm turning into an adult and I'm a mess. And here are the relationships that I was in when I was a mess. And so that was kind of initially how I'd approach things. And I quickly realized that those kind of white woman, young white woman finding herself memoirs, it wasn't going to do for me. I wasn't, I, I did not afforded that kind of privilege. Um, but it's also not something that I can get away with and still be considered a credible journalist and author. Mm. So I spent a lot of time trying to, it's really tough to kind of trim down those, those details of like, what is too much or what is enough and not be a TMZ. And I think I said many times in the process to my editor, like, I do not want an expose. I'm, I'm not trying to like shock people in this way. It's not what I wanted. But throughout the process, I had a hard time understanding how I could get it to a place where I felt like I respected myself, put up a boundary and allowed people to see themselves in it without going too far. And I kind of used the test of um, if I walked into a family party or Christmas dinner, would I be able to stand by what I said? Um, Or would I forever going forward until the day I die, worry about, oh my gosh, I said too much. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want that. And especially with my relationship with my with my mother and with my romantic partners and especially my best friend Taz 
I had to kind of step away a couple of times and make sure that I wasn't, I was coming from a neutral place. I really do not advocate for writing things or publishing things when you're angry. And there are a lot of things in there that took, it took a year, it took a decade to, to write about. And so it's no, it's not easy to write about trauma and it's not something that can be rushed, but I had to make sure that I wasn't writing from a place of anger because those words are permanent. And so even the stuff with my friend Taz and our relationship kind of deteriorating, a lot of my friends were like, oh, you wrote about her in a really nice way. And I'm like, the story was wild. Mm. She was not a nice person, but that's not up That's not up to me. I'm not here to tell her story. I'm here to tell my story. And the parts that she's in, I'll keep, I'll keep them as thin as possible. So I had to do a lot of trimming and, and asking myself, why is this here? What is the purpose of this being here? That was tough. And so when I actually finally gave a copy of the book to my mom and my grandfather, it was less than a month before the book actually came out because I was that scared. <laughs> and I, I waited and I dropped, kind of dropped it on the table and I went back to my apartment in downtown Toronto. And I was like, oh, the book's on the table. And um, I had to, at that point, I was, I was happy with what I had written, but you just never know. And they were really supportive. I think they were really shocked about the things that happened in the book, not just the ways I think that race or, or inter being in being mixed race played a role in our family dynamics, but also kind of just being a, a, a kid and having fun, like in Brown culture, you don't talk about partying and sleeping around and drinking. Mm -hmm. And so there was this whole new me that they never really encountered. But I, I think I was able to stand by because I did it in a way where I knew I had respected myself. And I was also telling my truth. Hmm. And then what about the people who you aren't in touch with anymore? Some of those ex-partners and Taz, do you know if they've read the book or had an awareness of it? Well, I don't know if they've read the book, but I do know that a ton of people we went to high school with um, have read the book. Mm -hmm. There's only one person, like one ex-partner in the book where I told him I was going to be writing about it. We had a conversation a couple of years ago. And he said, and, and most, and everyone in the book said, you know, write it the way that you believe it, write your truth. And so he finished it actually over the summer and he messaged me and he was like, well, uh, I thought the book was really great. Uh, like it was well done, but can I use the description that you used of me on my Tinder profile? <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, you're, you're still an asshole. Like <laughs> <laughs> you are the same person. And it, it was kind of funny, but at the same time, I was like, you've also realized how much you've grown from, <laughs> from this experience, you know, like people are literally the same person, but, um, that was as far as it got in terms of uh, like an ex or like a, someone I don't talk to actually reaching out. Okay. <laughs> wow. I wouldn't have <laughs> expected that. <laughs> yeah, me either, but also I'm not surprised. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I won't, I won't bug you to know who it was, but <laughs> I guess this brings up perhaps a more serious issue, which is that you talk about intimate partner violence and not reading it as a woman. Um, I felt like I knew what you were going through, but I also didn't. It was a really interesting moment of craft for me to read because you're, you're at the same time very detailed and very vague. And I'm just kind of curious why you chose to write that chapter as you did. Yes. Yeah, so that chapter, as you probably have assumed, it was really, really tough to write um, for many, many reasons. And one of them was that, like I was saying earlier about the TMZ expose, it, I, it's, it's so hard to write that kind of story in a he said, she said type of way. Mm -hmm. And um, I had read this book and the name escapes me, but it's by Lee Stein. And she wrote about an abusive relationship with her, her ex-boyfriend. 
And she was so terrified of him that she waited to write this memoir, but he actually died very young in a motorcycle accident. And she decided to write this book. So from the beginning, I'm like, oh my gosh, do I have to wait till he dies? Like, you know, what is the, what are the ethics around this situation? Do I even want to say something? But it felt so important to say, because a lot of the decisions that I make in the book come back to that. And so, um, what it didn't feel right to kind of write it as like, you know, and this happened and this happened and this happened. And it felt really invasive. And it got to the point where I had about four days left on my final deadline and I still wasn't happy with it. And I just felt kind of, I felt like I had invaded my own privacy or disrespect. Like the boundary was broken and I didn't know how to fix it. And I was having these conversations in, you know, in editing in where they were like, can you tell us what happened? And I'm, and I was like, no, like I would take it out and they'd be like, can you put it back? And I'd be like, no. And to me, um, I kind of came into my power in that way when I think if there are, you know, there are minor edits to be done on something, I'll let it go. But when I feel strongly about something, I will fight for it. And what I found was that the audience that I was writing it for, and I think this has a lot to say with um, people who have encountered trauma or even just people of color, we communicate in glances. We we communicate in things that are less. We don't communicate over the in over the top ways because we're never allowed to. And so when I read someone else's writing who is a person of color or has gone through something similar to me, I understand way more than what's on the page. Like they can use a sentence and that sentence says everything I need. And so it went from me explaining everything in great detail um, down to like the physical moments of violence to taking them out and it being enough for me and it being enough and saying everything that I need people to know about it. Mm -hmm. And I think that the people who've been through it uh, and the survivors who've been through it, they know everything they need to know. It's enough for them. It may not be enough for other people who haven't been in the situation, but I know that they get it. And so it was really deliberate. It was almost in a way like a fight against this whole revenge porn thing where I mm -hmm. need to give more of myself, but also that um, there are some things that need to be left unsaid and we don't need to say everything. And I don't need to say everything. Even though I have this great opportunity to write this book, I can just say what it needs to be said. And I felt really comfortable in that decision. That's really great. And I think, I guess I'm just curious then if you've gotten reaction from readers, you know, do they want those details? Have they expressed that to you? And aside from them, do you feel like you've gotten through to the people who need to know what this experience is like for those of us who suffer it and in order to, you know, help towards changing our, our culture? Yeah, I, I get a lot of messages from um, women, not just young women, but women who are a bit older, who were like, I, I was in a very similar situation. And nobody, and I've actually even had teachers who I went to high school with read it um, and, you know, read that. And they knew who my, my ex was. We had classes together. They knew all these things. And I think no one's ever asked for more detail but I think that says a lot about also how far we've come as readers, because the detail or the description of violence that I think that people want to see in a very kind of uh, 
kind of gross way, like in a voyeuristic way, mm-hmm. wasn't the point of that chapter. And I think they see that. I think the point of that chapter is, you know, this is, these are two young people who have really twisted ideas of love. And this is what happens when you ignore the red flags. This is what happens when you don't have healthy, you know, healthy understanding of love. Mm-hmm. And that is what they got from it. So I think that when you write memoir, you write, write you know, you write about yourself, what you're looking for is that universal element. And I think that the universal element elements it was so strong in the piece and it didn't come down to the physical part of what happened in that relationship it had been set already mm-hmm. the physical part of it was the climax of that and the end of that story in in a way but um what the lead-up was i think that's where people saw themselves they saw themselves in these situations where you're like i think he crossed the line but i'm not sure so i'll wait till the next time and the next time gets worse and the next time gets worse and then you can't get out of it and i think that's what um people resonated with mm-hmm. it's also written with so much empathy for him and mm-hmm. i think that's really important to that you make the effort to understand where he's coming from and what would have you know kind of constructed his beliefs about relationships and his his role and entitlement within them yeah, I really struggled with that. And I think that was the reason, like I was saying earlier with like my four days till the deadline, I had four days and then I turned it into a letter. And I had done that because as I was writing, you know, I had my my four days left in panicking, I realized I used to write him letters that I'd ever sent, which is a thing that, you know, your therapist will tell you to do when you're upset with somebody. So I had written it that way. And it also seemed like the only way to kind of, um, reach him in a way that didn't make him look like a bad guy i i think that you lose readers when you do like the good versus bad he wasn't bad i wasn't good all the time Mm -hmm. and so it was important for me to to in a way kind of give him the opportunity and i i really really don't believe in the um the idea that because you have you come from an abusive home you become an abuser but I do think that the things that we see, especially if there's no one there to correct it, they can contribute. And when you have two people who come from that background, it can be really explosive. And um, we were also just teenagers. Like mm-hmm. we weren't adults. We weren't in our forties. We were both teenagers. And I think that also says a lot about um, um, the chapter and give, you know, give being empathetic towards him was that we both were 16 or 15 or 16 years old. And uh, we both grown from that. Mm-hmm. I'm also curious about, the experience of writing about race in this often very personal way and how it how that's been for you in book form especially because you're you're directing it at the canadian context you know we're so often hearing about the american context and there's you know a real sort of plethora of writing about the american context right now but what has it been like to actually directly talk about anti-black racism in Canada? I feel a little like um, when I was writing it, I was kind of smirking. I felt a little bit like, ha, told you so. Because the whole time I had been writing about race, it was just, I was constantly met with this, like, we don't have this kind of racism in Canada, or it wasn't that bad, or we never had plantations. Um, So this idea that it didn't exist, which I knew it had because I had experienced it and met people. So to be able to not just write about it, but to be able to reach out and look for research that backed it up and it was there and it was a devastating research. It kind of, in a way, it was just this kind of like breath, like just release of like, it's there. I'm not making it up. This is real. And you have to stare at it. You have to look at it and make peace with this or, or at least understand and enlighten yourself. So I think that we're doing a bit better. I think there are still conversations where people think that racism isn't that bad. And, um, 
I've been teaching my class a lot about this, but a lot of Canadians don't even know that we had slavery here for over 200 years. We had, you know, um, classified, describing slaves. We sold children. We had segregated schools in Canada until the 80s, which wasn't that long ago. So it's, it's something that I think we still need to work on in terms of educating people. But it also, I think, is such a shock to people still that when they do see it and it's, they're confronted with it and there's research and data and history, hopefully it's something that people are, are, are they're going to be quick to understand it and make peace with that as opposed to just deny it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get the sense that that is happening, that there's just a, a kind of, we can't go back anymore. We can't you pretend <laughs> things are different from what we're seeing right in front of us. And there is going to be no possible return to this um, set of illusions we've been operating on for so long. Yes, absolutely. It's that I think it's, it's so long over it's over now. And um, the New York times, I think they're, they did a public opinion poll on uh, the perception or the, the public's perception or opinion on black lives matter. And they found that, the, the opinion, the public opinion of Black Lives Matter had changed more in two weeks in June than it had in two years. Wow. So I think we are at the point, yeah, I think we're at the point now where we're starting to understand you walk into a bookshop and all the books on anti-Black racism, they're gone. Mm. So, I mean, to me, the election was still too close, but I think mm-hmm. at least here in Canada, there's a, there's a bit more investment, even financial investment or intellectual investment in these issues. Mm-hmm. I have one just kind of maybe fun question for you to finish things off. Um, who do you imagine your sort of, I don't want to say perfect reader, but maybe ideal reader or common typical reader is for this book? Did you have someone in mind as you were writing, someone you were talking to? Uh, I did. Uh, my comment, I think my like target reader would be some, you know, a woman of color, who is like progressive into very progressive things, reads a lot, like um, probably like a, like a women's studies or like a, a major, like a critical race theorist or something like that. <laughs> Someone who's like just down for the cause and loves to engage with these kinds of conversations. Probably someone like me who will like talk your ear off in a debate until like, you know, <laughs> and I think that having that person in mind really drove me as I wrote the book. So I'm like, yeah, we're out there. So um, that was definitely it, my ideal reader. Oh, I love that. I think I think everyone yeah. should have that ideal person in mind as they're writing because it just, it brings you through those really bad moments when you're sitting alone <laughs> again in the desk chair trying to get this thing done. It's nice to envision that conversation that you're having with that person. It is. And she had really cute nails and like very <laughs> cute like social justice t-shirts. Which, Amazing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love it. (laughs) So, Eternity, you have some writing tips for us. What can you tell us today? So um, a lot of people ask me how I wrote a whole book with a full-time job and other little things going on and freelancing. So some of my tips for this is um, on how to manage writing your book or writing your project and dealing with life. So the first one is that you have to make time for it. 
And it sounds kind of silly, but treating writing as a job, as a part-time job, is one of the only ways you're going to be able to make time for your writing. So whether you're setting aside 20 minutes before you wake up, you don't need like two hours, 20 minutes, or on your lunch break, instead of kind of walking around aimlessly, maybe you sit down and you write, or after you go to the gym, you make time to write. So making an actual, like carving out time to write and sticking to it is a really good way to make it part of your process. I would also say that um, even a line a day works. So I think being kind to yourself, there's not every day you're not going to feel like writing. Every day you're not going to write for, you know, you're not going to write 3,000 words. So even if you can write a line a day, that is still better than nothing. And it keeps you kind of going. So you have something to look forward to the next day. I would also say that in order to write when you have a full-time job, you want to make it a ritual. I think we like special things. So if you have a space that you can set up, so maybe you have some crystals or you have a nice lamp or a mood lamp um, or you know, you're know you surrounded by plants, having a place where you can write so that when you do make that time in the day, you can go to it. And I would also say that you're not going to be able to do everything. So it's going to be a give or take. If there's something else that you want to work on, you might want to put that aside for a bit. I really recommend working on one project at a time. So if you, for example, um, what have to go rake the leaves and the, the leaves can wait. I know you probably should rake your leaves, but if the leaves can wait, maybe you can write that day, rake the leaves later that day or the next day. You're going to have to give or take because if you're burnt out, you're not really going to write either. Um, and so that is kind of the way that I went about it, making making the time, making it part of your day, but also being kind to yourself when you don't meet deadlines. And a line a day will work. And- oh, that is so helpful. In fact, you have inspired me to go see if I can create a special space because it hasn't been happening over here lately. <laughs> yes, the, the, the special space helps a lot. Yeah, yes. yeah exactly. Yes. Just separate from everything else that you do can really make a difference. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for this. It was wonderful to talk to you and and I'm sure you're going to start lots of conversations among our listeners. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Jillian. If you're interested in writing nonfiction, the University of King's College MFA in Creative Nonfiction might be for you. Find out more at ukings.ca slash MFA. And if you'd like to hear more book-related conversations, check out Bookings, the podcast of our friends at the King's Co-op Bookstore. That's it for today's show. Thanks to Eternity Martis for talking to us. Her latest book, They Said This Would Be Fun, Race, Campus Life, and Growing Up, is available from McClelland and Stewart. Further reading is produced by the University of King's College MFA program in creative nonfiction. Our editors are Kirsten DePina and Samantha Hepperly. Music by Pete Johnston. Graphics by Mike Smith. I'm your host, Jillian Turnbull. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. Mm-hmm.